In 1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Mrs. Myra Bradwell, who had apprenticed, passed the bar exam, and had support from legal professionals, the right to practice law. Their decision quoted the Supreme Court of Illinois' opinion that allowing women to be attorneys was never contemplated. A lot has changed in the legal profession since 1872, but there is always room for improvement. From the Florida Bar's Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism, this is never contemplated. Welcome to this edition of Never Contemplated. I'm your host, Heddle Desai. On January 28, 2021, the Florida Supreme Court and the Florida Bar recognized members of the bar, law firms, and members of the judiciary who volunteered their time, expertise, and resources to ensure access to justice for those who otherwise could not afford it. The Florida Bar Rules of Professional Conduct require bar members to annually report whether the member has provided pro bono legal services to the poor. The history in Florida of providing legal services for the less fortunate dates back to the Great Depression. At that time, local bar associations and communities started legal aid programs operating solely through volunteers and private attorneys. Through the years, the Florida Bar made numerous attempts to adopt a statewide policy requiring pro bono service for all lawyers. It was not until 1990 that the Florida Bar and the Florida Bar Foundation created a joint commission on the delivery of legal services to the indigent in Florida. The implementation of these new and controversial rules fell into the hands of today's guest, Judge Patricia Seitz. In 1993, Judge Seitz was elected as the first female president of the Florida Bar and sworn in just in time to implement the new pro bono requirements. Not only was Judge Seitz on the ground floor of the reporting policy, but she continues to advocate for funding and providing legal services to the less fortunate. In 2018, she received the Chief Justice's Distinguished Federal Judicial Service Award, which recognizes a member of the federal judiciary for outstanding and sustained service to the public, especially as it relates to the support of pro bono legal services. Judge Seitz graduated from Georgetown Law School, clerked for a federal judge in the District of Columbia, and was the first female attorney hired at Steele, Hector, and Davis. She later served as director of the Office of Legal Counsel for the Office of National Drug Control Policy under President Bill Clinton. She was appointed to the federal bench in the U.S. Southern District Court of Florida in 1998, where she has served until 2012, when she took senior judge status. Before we begin, I want to warn listeners that during our interview with Judge Seitz, we had technical difficulties, and you may notice a change in sound quality. Stick with us because it's worth every minute. Welcome, Judge Seitz. It's such an honor to have you on the podcast today. You have such an interesting and diverse story, but I want to start at the very beginning. I understand you were a military brat and that your parents were not attorneys. Where did you spend your childhood? I lived in 13 different places by the time I was 13, um, including Brazil and Japan. The first place that I lived in the extensive time was when I went to high school and I was the only one in my family to be able to go four years in one place. So I lived primarily at military bases. My father ended up being a three-star general. He was a paratrooper and he had jumped into the southern invasion of France. And my mother 
was a uh, Red Cross worker. They had met in high school and they kept in contact and they were both in Europe and uh, they got married in Europe after the end of the war. Well, being a worldwide traveler at the age of 13, that must have shaped you and your ideas of the world. How did you feel about settling down after traveling for that long? I must admit, it made my early life easy to remember because I could always think, okay, how old was I? And then I could put it into a particular place. The settling down, though, uh, was very comfortable. And it was very nice to have uh, roots because I have friends here on the court that still keep in contact with people that they went to kindergarten with or known each other since first grade. And other than my siblings and about two friends that I can count on from high school, I don't have any of those long-term from my childhood friends, they are all as my adult friendships. And uh, But God has blessed me in so many, many ways. And so uh, beginning with my parents and my mother's uh, belief was that we never looked at any place that we were leaving as leaving. We were always looking forward to the adventure ahead. And I think that that shaped me for always being open to the new. And it didn't hurt that I come from a long line of pioneering women in Kansas. Um, My great-grandmother was a suffragette. And and I think those genes and the sense of adventure that my parents gave me uh, has been a real blessing in life. Well, did you end up in Kansas? Uh, You ended up going and getting your bachelor's degree there, uh, right? Right. My dad kept his um, residency in the state of Kansas. And when it came time to go to college, he said, you can go to college anywhere you want to. I will pay for Kansas State. And in 1964, it was $122 a semester, not a semester hour, (laughs) semester. (laughs) Well, uh, you ended up getting a degree in Russian history or Russian literature. Is that correct? Russia, uh, history with a concentration in uh, Russian, uh, particularly at the Bolshevik, the first Bolshevik res, uh, revolution in February of 1917. How, how specific is that? <laughs> <laughs> your parents were not attorneys. No. You uh, have, your undergrad degree is not in any typical pre-law area, but yet you ended up going to Georgetown Law School. How was that transition? Because of a series of events that I ended up at the Department of Labor in the management intern program and got to work in the pilot project for the summer employment of disadvantaged youth in January of 1969. And I was working at the Dunbar High School in a part of Washington, D.C., which is where I was born, that had been a real prosperous middle class and then had fallen on hard times. And I was the only white employee in the program. And my boss was such a phenomenal leader, a guy by the name of Bill Butler, that the ability to help those kids 
made me think that at the end of the summer, I realized all of the things I enjoyed about that job, the entrepreneurial aspects, the helping people, uh, might be gone when it became a bureaucracy. But if I went to law school, I would have a ticket and I could help people. And so I applied to Georgetown and amazingly was accepted. And so you worked your way through law school as a reporter in Washington, D.C. Well, I, I didn't start out as a reporter. I was started out to just send copy. And my boss came in and said one day, how would you like to cover the Supreme Court? We'll pay you extra. And I said, what? Where do I sign? Um, and that's how I ended up covering the, the Supreme Court. Well, what was it like covering the Supreme Court, going through law school, and covering cases, civil rights cases at that time? Roe v. Wade, I think, was during the time you were in law school. What was it like as a female law student covering those issues? Just a flood of, of um, memories come back, starting with the Roe versus Wade. And that was the first time I had ever seen a woman in court. Sarah Weddington was arguing on behalf of Roe, and uh, she was all of, I think, 28 or 29 at the time. I can still tell you what she wore and how she handled herself during the oral argument. It, it was just riveting to me. And, and then the mechanics of running back and put, you know, sitting down at the large wooden table where the non-LA Times or the New York Times, everybody else who wasn't a big newspaper had to work off this big wooden table and sitting there at your manual typewriter and everybody else looking over their shoulders to find out what you were going to lead with. So those are funny memories. But among my, my law student uh, friends, they were all envious that I had always had a seat in the press gallery. Well, I think we would all be envious of you <laughs> getting to be a fly on the wall during such important cases. But after law school, you ended up clerking for a federal district judge in the District of Columbia. So you stayed in Washington. What did you learn from your clerking experience? Well, the um, judge that I had the privilege of clerking for, I was the first woman law clerk that he ever hired. And I think that's a trend for you everywhere <laughs> you go. You're such a trailblazer, but go ahead. I'm sorry. The Judge Ritchie, who was my, is my father in the law and a real role model for me as far as being a good mentor. And I follow his style in my relationships with all of my law clerks. The first day on the job, it was Ralph Nader in the witness box, Ralph Nader versus the Allegheny Airlines case, because he had been bumped. And, you know, all of the compensation airlines now pay for people when they get bumped stem from that case. And so that was the first case. Another case, we had the civil suits in the Watergate case. While the criminal cases were going on in Judge Sirica's uh, courtroom, we had the civil suits, which my judge decided to stay until the civil suits, the criminal suits were, were over with. 
and he was accused of playing politics because he had been appointed by Richard Nixon. And I mean, just just what I learned, but the, the thing that probably endeared me the most to him was he, we had a case in which it was the first sexual harassment case. That was before sexual harassment was a recognized matter. And he looked at the evidence and all of the letters that this woman had been besieged with by her boss, you know, asking for sexual favors and like, and he just said, this is not right. This is not the way you treat people if you are trying to motivate them and have them be part of the team efforts to do a good job. Um, And he held against the agency. It was things like that. He was willing to do that. Uh, the veterans uh, of, of foreign wars wanted to camp on the um, the Washington Mall in protest of the Vietnam War. And so he, he came in and said, I want you to, to write the opinion uh, supporting my decision to let them camp. And I said, Judge, there's a Supreme Court decision that came out when I was in law school that says, you can't do that. And he said, go ahead. It's the principle of the thing. And so I wrote it. We came out. At, I didn't go to sleep at night at all. I just stayed the whole night getting that opinion done for him. And he then took a look at it. And that was the sign that you had succeeded in your relationship with your judge, that you so could think in his voice and knew what he wanted and put it on paper for him. We were reversed 15 minutes. Well, that sounds like a a great experience for you, even though you got reversed. I didn't. He he did. I mean, he he was the one that that signed them. (laughs) But I always wanted to do my very best for him so that uh, he would feel like he was not going out on a limb unless he, he was intentionally going out on a limb. Well, you have, so you have your federal clerkship, you have the backing of Judge Ritchie, and you have a Georgetown law degree. And even though you interviewed at a lot of well-known firms, national firms, there was resistance because many of those firms did, had never hired a female attorney and you were the first female maybe that they were even interviewing. Did you feel that you had to overcompensate at those interviews? How, how did that work? Maybe it was because when you are young, you feel no uh, barriers. But it didn't cross my mind. I just sent my resume, and if they wanted to interview me, they, they interviewed me. I think that I was not in the mold of what most people expected. I did not come in in my little blue suit with my beige blouse and my bow tie, but I felt great uh, looking in it. And and all my life has been that way. You cannot be afraid of doing something the first time. You may fall flat on your face, but you learn from the experience. And you learn, okay, that didn't work. Let's try it again. And so you end up in Miami and you interview at Steel Hector and despite your resume and, and uh, your experience, they don't jump at the chance to hire you. You right. actually have to have Sandy Downbert uh, kind of go to bat for you. Tell us about that interview. 
Well, the, the, the preludes to the interview are two preludes. I had not known that they had never hired a woman. Uh, that just didn't cross my mind, nor that they had turned down Janet Reno with her Harvard Law degree in 1963 when she applied. So I sent my resume because I was thinking of moving to Miami. All my friends thought I was crazy. And I had not heard from them. And I got down to Miami and ran into someone who was a partner in the firm. And he said, well, are you coming to interview? He had been a, a federal judge's clerk as well. And I said, no, I haven't heard. He said, ah, I'll, I'll take care of everything. Um, it was Barry Davidson. He said, I'll take care of everything. Uh, you just show up. And so I arrived at the interview and he said, uh, when you get home, you will find a letter from the firm saying, thank you very much, but uh, we're not hiring. Uh, disregard that letter. And apparently that was the standard letter. They, they just said, thank you very much, but we're not hiring. I went through the interview and really liked the people. They were very involved in their community. They were doing such interesting, high quality legal work. They had some of the best clients um, and they did more than just practice law. They read books they were involved in the theater, the arts, in politics. They were just a very interesting group of people. And Mr. Davis, whom I met in the first interview, though had been the first county attorney for Miami-Dade County. And in an interview, he had asked me, have you ever thought of public service? And I then read that, oh, they're not gonna hire a woman. So I went back to D.C., and it was Sandy and John Edward Smith had convinced them that they should take a gamble on me. And Sandy persuaded me to come back down to the firm to interview. So I came back down, and the person that Barry picked me up at the hotel, and he said, you're going to meet Bill Steele. Bill is the one who is the most resistant to hiring a female lawyer. And so we had the most wonderful interview. I mean, another Renaissance man who, in addition to all of his other talents, was a chef, a Harvard Law grad, uh, just a phenomenal lawyer. And so at the end of the interview, he asked me, well, do you have any questions? And I said, I have only one. I understand you are concerned about hiring a woman as a lawyer. And I'd like to talk to you about that and to find out what is the concern that you have. And he shared with me, he thought that it was important that uh, women um, nurture a family and that you couldn't practice law and be a nurturing parent. And I remember saying, well, suppose uh, the woman doesn't have children, or suppose the man doesn't have children. Is that an impediment? He says, well, for the woman, ultimately. I said, but suppose the woman doesn't have children. And he said, okay, you're right. I should look at the person as an individual and leave the rest up to whatever's going to happen. 
And so they ended up hiring you. You ended up staying for 22 years. Do you think that you changed the partner's minds about female attorneys? Do you you think that you had that responsibility to change their minds? I just decided to do good work. And fortunately, they were just very forward-thinking lawyers in John and Sandy and other of the partners. And they recognized that we needed to be inclusive. I think that's one of the things that I liked about them. They were an inclusive group. And so they reached out. And by the time I left, I can remember before I left, having, we were 40 women lawyers and having them all in the same room together and just thinking back as to the number of women that have come, some had had left, but that were still there. And when the firm hired its first African-American, he and I were just naturally gravitated towards each other. And we became a trial team for 18 years, uh, Frank Scruggs. I saw it yesterday. Uh, You showed me the pictures in your office of of you and Frank Scruggs, and it was a who's who of, of Florida legal heavy hitters, Sandy Dallenberg, but also Rosemary Barquette and Martha Barnett. But my favorite picture that you showed me yesterday was of uh, you and I think you call them your sisters on the bench, which was, I, I think, a, an alternative to the boys club. Why is it important to have those kind of relationships in your workplace? My job is to open the doors so that more come behind me. And when you have some other individuals with similar experiences that you have, there's just a comfort level. And I find that my, uh, the first woman on our federal court here in the Southern District was Judge Lenore Nesbitt, who had been incredible mentors to me and who I'm asked to give me the oath when I was formally sworn in. And I was the fourth. And in my investiture speech, I could recognize her accomplishment and then say, I was so thrilled that I was no longer the first nor the only, and I was the fourth. And now we are nine on our uh, Southern District uh, Court. And uh, during the whole pandemic and dealing with COVID, it has been my sisters whom I've dubbed my Amazon warriors, who have very quietly organized and gotten us together and very practically focused on how do we address this. My two um, sisters, Judge Ungaro and and Judge Leonard, have both taken on GSA. And what is GSA for our listeners? It's the General Services Administration, who is our landlord. And anyone who's in the federal system, in the judiciary, knows what I'm talking about (laughs) when I say took them on. Judge Bloom organized another thing, uh, Judge Leonard. Just each one of our sister judges 
were willing to take some part of the task without any need to be recognized. They just wanted the good of the court and giving all of our other colleagues a sense of there is a plan and that we're all in this together and it's all hands on deck. And the whole court has just come together. It has been actually a unifying uh, experience for the whole court. I'm very proud of my whole court. <laughs> well, you talked about opening doors. When you were at the law firm, you, you, know, you said that you ended up, when you left, there were 40 female attorneys. One of the attorneys that they hired after you, female attorneys, you opened the door for, for them hiring Janet Reno, who they had rejected before. How does it feel to be a trailblazer for a trailblazer? And for, for, Ms. for Janet Reno, who also opened her own doors for others. She really was an amazing human being. Uh, when I had the offer out of the blues to leave the firm and to come to D.C. to um, be General Barry McCaffrey's uh, chief legal counsel in the White House Drug Policy Office, when Barry called me, I said, Barry, it's been 25 years since I've been in D.C. I know diddly squat about the drug issue, and I have no criminal background. You really need somebody in D.C. who knows this issue. And, and as your friend, I advise you to find somebody like that. He says, no, 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 I want you to think about it. And I said, well, Barry, to work with you would be such an ex wonderful experience. But can I talk to my former law partner? And he said, who's that? And I said, Janet Reno. And he said, oh, and she was the attorney general at the time. And he said, oh, yes, you talk to her. So I called Janet and her first question wanted to know how I knew Barry. And I told her and she said, well, what does Alan think? Because, you know, she'd been involved in the matchmaking. I said, well, we both want to know what you think. And Alan and she, is your husband now. Correct. And uh, then she said, do it. I thought, great. Barry had stressed that it was not an offer because he is, was not yet confirmed. And I didn't hear from Barry for four weeks. And so I thought, oh, good. He's taken my advice. And one night we came home late. It was a month, Sunday night. It was like eight o'clock. It was dark in February. And he, uh, he had left a message. I need to know, are you coming? And Alan said, well, let's, we need to think about this. It will mean a significant drop in pay. It will mean taking a place and expending a place for money for a place in D.C. and um, a drop in salary. And we would have the cost of going back and forth. So we went for a walk. It's dark at night. And as we are walking about a block away, friends of ours catch us in their headlights. And they stop, roll down the window. And the wife says, I want you to be the first to know. I've just agreed to be president of People for the American Way. And I've taken a two-bedroom, two-bath apartment in D.C. And please come visit me. And I said, Carol, do you want a roommate? <laughs> and she said, sure. And we walked back. And Alan said, 
I don't know, but God wants you to do this job and we'll make it work however it happens. And well, so- I, I want to talk to you about that, but I want to go back to something you said about uh, Janet Reno. It, did I hear that she was a matchmaker and maybe perhaps gave you dating advice? Well, when uh, Alan and I were getting serious, she came over to make sure that this was the right match. And she said, I have two questions. I said, okay, what are they? She said, is he your best friend? And I said, yes. And she said, good. That's a good answer for the first question. Second question, does he tingle your toes? And I said, yes. She said, great. You've got to have both. You can't have one without the other. And she, I thought, was very right. And uh, we will be married going, we're going to be 40 years this August. So that's wonderful. So you took the job with the drug control policy, the legal office there. And Janet Reno was, at that time, attorney general. You had been in private practice for 22 years and then switched to being a government attorney, doing public service, what was that like? A culture shock. Why was that? One, I was in D.C., where everyone speaks in acronyms. I was in an area that I was cramming to become current on. My job was to keep my boss out of jail, and we had the responsibility to coordinate 54 agencies in the federal government and work with the 50 states to develop and coordinate the national drug policy. Bill Clinton has downsized the office to 25 people. So Barry came in with 10 of us and we had to build up an office and hiring in the government is not like hiring in private sector. So we had, I had three lawyers we got one from uh, that was had was there, and I said, you, you're going to remain the general counsel, and I'll just be the chief counsel, because you've got the expertise, and I, I need somebody with the expertise. We got somebody from uh, the Coast Guard, and somebody from that had been in Barry's judge advocate when he was in the Army. And so that was our mighty little team. And I remember, you know, coming from a large firm, because by that time the firm was over 400, to go to an operation that I remember putting something in the outbox. And I came back later and it was still there. And I asked somebody, how does something, you know, when, when do they pick up the mail and, and deliver it? And the person looked at me with as if I had asked a very strange question. And I said, inner office mail. Who, who does that? And she said, you do it. I said, okay, got it, got it. Let's go back to your time at Steel Hector. You were the first female bar president in 1993. It took the Florida bar 43 years to elect a female bar president. After you, I think there have been seven other female Florida bar presidents, but you were the first one, again, opening the door to that. What made you run for that position? And what did it mean at that time? It was a question from my good friend, then Judge Patsy Fawcett. Patsy and I had been very involved in the bar, and she had been on the Board of Governors before me. And uh, she was appointed 
Reagan appointed her to the bench. She was supposed to be the first woman to be president of the Florida Bar. She had been president of the Orange County Bar. She was just a stellar lawyer and just highly respected. And the two of us were on a plane and she turned to me and she said, okay, so when are you gonna run for president? And I said, uh, why me? And she said, well, it's payback time. You have had all of the advantages. You've done everything necessary. If you don't run, then there will not be a woman to run for president before the year 2000. And then she said, you don't have to win. You just have to run a good campaign to show that a woman can do it. And I said, okay, let me think about that. And it was then a two-part uh, struggle, an internal one as to, did I want to take this risk? Suppose I lost. After that time, the, the um, preceding contestant campaign had been cost each of the candidates $500,000 out of pocket to run the statewide election. Plus, you're not billing time and you're not developing your clients and things like that while you're campaigning. And I thought, you know, everybody loves a winner, but what happens if you don't win? Can you accept losing? And I thought, okay, I can. And if that's what um, the good Lord wants, uh, it'll all work out. I don't know how. But the second question was, why do I want to run? Because you can't run just for the sake of running or because it is something that I would like to do and have a credential behind me. If you're going to put yourself forward for public service, you should know what you would like to accomplish. What is the vision that if people elect you, they are getting? How are you going to implement that vision? How are you going to motivate others to buy into that vision? How practical is that vision for achieving? Why is that vision needed at this particular time? And so I sat through and did that analysis. And once I did those two things, I said, okay, let's go for it. And the real test came when I was uh, debating the Dade County, my opponent in the Dade County Bar trial lawyers. Now, there was maybe one other woman in the group of the Dade County trial lawyers. And I remember my opponent standing up and saying, well, do you want a trial lawyer or do you want just a pretty face? And I thought, I can't let that just hang out there. Is that a compliment? <laughs> no, I went, because he was a put down. And so I took him on and my wonderful male friend that, uh, that had accompanied me there said, well, there was blood all over the floor, but uh, <laughs> it wasn't pretty, but you did the job. <laughs> and I realized that female candidates, when you are in contested elections, need to develop the Ronald Reagan one-line, quick, humorous comeback. And you just have to plan it and always remain polished, but with a sense of humor. Can you give it to us now, the one no, line? I can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did get elected, and you... It was a Texas landslide. 
of 913 votes. It was the most votes ever cast in a bar election. And I thought it made a great statement for both of us. Uh, and I was forever grateful to my opponent because if he had not been the tough candidate that he was, I would not have grown and stretched as much as I needed to to do the job as bar president as well as I did. Well, speaking of that, you did a great job with a lot of challenges. So when you became bar president in 1993, you had the task of getting buy-in from the Florida bar members regarding the new pro bono plan and program. Um, What did that entail? We had to have a statewide strategy, and it had to be focused on helping the lawyers buy into it. And we had a two-prong approach. One was getting the assistance, and this is um, forever grateful to John Harkness, our executive director, who hired Kent Spuler as the statewide pro bono coordinator in the bar. And he was just a great strategist. And we focused on my reaching out to each one of the bar sections and their leadership and working with them on ways that they could help their members, particularly, for example, if you had a tax lawyer. It's going, how do I do that? I don't want to take on a, you know, an eviction case that I know nothing about. So we came up with ways that they could still use their expertise as tax lawyers for small nonprofits that were providing uh, legal services. And this would save them money and get good legal services for, for them so that they could provide direct services. We then went to all of the local bars all over the state to just talk to the lawyers there and highlight those who were already doing pro bono and work with the local groups and legal aid groups to come up with ideas to make it easy to have training sessions and break it down where we put together the materials so that the lawyers could come in and in one hour be able to handle uh, things and the, the legal services providers in those communities would then you know, match them up with the clients in need. You traveled the state and I know that you're a very positive person and I don't want you to name names, but there was resistance from bar members for the mandatory reporting. How did you deal with the resistance? I know we talked about having to convert people. (laughs) (laughs) It starts with listening. What were their concerns? Resistance usually starts with fear. And fear of being embarrassed, fear of pressures. You need to listen and find out what the person's fears are. And then you can't cure everybody's fear. But if you break things down into small, manageable, and every problem can be broken down so that there is a first step, and you start out small, and then you build. There is no magic wand. 
or silver bullet for any problem solving. One has to be willing to trust people that if you will listen to them and they have confidence in you that you don't want to embarrass them, you want them to succeed, and you talk about the benefits to them personally that they come around. When you were bar president, I believe there were roughly 45,000 members of the Florida Bar. 54,000. 54,000. We're more than double now. Right. So as of January 1st of this year, there were, I I checked the website, it was 109,217 attorneys that are members of the bar. How has the makeup of the Florida bar changed and how has that changed the practice of law, in your opinion? The transformation of the practice over, I will be a member of the bar for going on 48 years this year, has been remarkable. When I started, we didn't have billable hours. (laughs) And I think that that and the rise of the big cases press and that competition changed and transformed the practice of law. I'm hoping that we are starting to move back to our roots, but that for, especially in the 90s, I was very, very concerned that we were focused solely on the business and everything was based in your, your legal prowess and your reputation was based not on the quality of the legal work and your integrity, but on the size of your toys and the amount of your, of your salary and the clients that you brought in. It was all so money-based rather than principle-based. And I think that that is a constant tension, profit versus principle. My personal philosophy is that the one that my firm had that always inspired me, you do well by doing good and always look for the best in the other person. And there are times that you have to go into your closet and say, And like just strangle that person. But you you gotta get it off your chest, step back and try and see where they are coming from and attack it that way. Well, let's talk about ways that attorneys can get connected with pro bono services. There are a number of programs that you've been involved with to encourage opportunities for attorneys to find pro bono work that they would enjoy and that also that they would be most suited for. The first is the Florida Pro Bono Matters, which I believe you were involved in. Tell us about how that works. That, again, was a brainchild of the foundation. And they realized, okay, one of the biggest problems is matching in real time lawyers with the needs. And... They came up with a computerized system, and uh, my job was persuading all of the, with a team of other people, I can't take all the credit, it was a team, to persuade, go around the state to get the legal service providers, you know, large and small ones, to sort of 
participate in this real-time matching. You, <laughs> you used a, a word yesterday <laughs> that I have, was unfamiliar with, and you educated me. What was it? What was well, it? I had read a bar article referring to the pro bono matters as the Tinder for attorneys and pro bono work. And I had to explain to you what Tinder was, which we won't do on, <laughs> on air today. But uh, but I think yes, I, was, I think you said it was absolutely the right analogy that that it was the Tinder for uh, for getting attorneys connected to pro bono work that would be best suited for them. Right, and and it was learning the art of clickbait, and what that means is that. How do you describe the particular needs that are involved in Twitter <laughs> size communique so that the lawyer would know, yes, this is something I want to do and something that I can handle? Well, another uh, program that you have been involved with is the CARE Court. Tell us about how yes. that works. In 2015, was it? Our U.S. attorney, our public defender, and the chief of probation came to the court and said, we'd like to do something very innovative. And the judges were also experiencing individuals that we send people to prison for long periods in the federal court system, and they were starting to come out. And we were having, in the federal system, the court supervises, not the state's corrections, the court supervises all individuals who are on a supervised release after their term of imprisonment so that we can, through probation, assist a successful reentry. And we had a number of people coming that were being revoked for small matters, but small crimes or more significant crimes saying, I just can't make it out here send me back. And so I went to the court and suggested that we strike a pilot project patterned on a program that Philadelphia and the Northern District of Florida were both doing. We went and studied both, interviewed everyone involved in those, created our own model that worked for our particular community, and then my job was to sell it to all of my colleagues for a three-year pilot or for, no, for an 18-month pilot. And I got the University of Miami to do an outside evaluation of how effective we were. And at the end of that, the court in the 2018, was it? Uh, they decided to make it a permanent program of the court. And it is designed to help those returning after long prison sentences more successfully reintegrate. Besides donating money, what can attorneys do to participate or to volunteer in the care court process? If everyone is here in Miami, because we operated in Miami, we have 6,000 under supervision in the Southern District of Florida with the biggest concentration in Miami-Dade County. So we started here the pandemic has shown us that we can do this virtually by Zoom. And so we are now looking as to how we, we operate also in Broward, Palm Beach, Fort Pierce. We've got the judges that are interested in participating. 
So we were going to be growing and building. Well, you mentioned um, COVID and conducting Zoom hearings and meetings. We previously discussed how life has been especially stressful this last year. What has helped you get through this time? My faith, my family, and my sisters here on the bench, my Amazon warriors, (laughs) and just helping us cope. We also, my husband and I, love to travel. That's our biggest hobby. And so this year, since we couldn't travel, we decided we would commission an artist to design and build a piece of sculpture for our garden. Well, it sounds like you supported a local artist and also found joy in what is otherwise a a stressful time. I have one final question for you before we get off the air. If you could give one piece of advice for a new attorney in your courtroom, what would it be? Always aim to do your very, very best and trust in your higher power that if you do your best, whatever happens is what is best for all concern. That's my philosophy, and it's hard sometimes to maintain it. Um, That's why the spiritual part of my life is so important to be recharged every day. But for the lawyers coming in, especially young lawyers, don't be afraid. Give it a try. Do your very best. And always be kind and considerate of others. Well, I want to thank you, Judge Seitz, for your insight and for sharing all your stories with us. We really appreciate your time, and I wish you well and be safe. Thank you so much, and thank you for the delight of working with you and Clay. And that concludes this episode of Never Contemplated. I'd like to thank Clay Shaw of the Florida Bar for his technical expertise and Rebecca Bandy and Katie Young from the Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism for helping me make this podcast a reality. For more information on the Florida Bar's pro bono requirements and programs and other articles on Judge Patricia Seitz, follow the links on the Never Contemplated podcast page on the Florida Bar website.